Now, now we're competent. Okay, first time ever. Hey, here we are. Uh, let's see, before I get started, I, I'm fascinated, and I said a couple of weeks ago too, uh, I'm fascinated by what's going on with Russia and simultaneously with this worldwide pandemic because I know at some point Russia is going to figure into things and that's going to be Ezekiel 38. And the strategy it looks like right now is that uh, if Russia invades the Ukraine, it could happen today, it could happen while we're talking, while I'm talking. If Russia invades the Ukraine, then the European Union and the United States, Australia, uh, every country that is allied with the United States will try to destroy the Russian economy. And that will not be difficult. But if the Russian economy is destroyed, that will make the Russians even more desperate. And, of course, Ezekiel 38 talks about the expansion of the Russian uh, military force. So something has to happen to the United States in order to keep it from uh, being uh, able to withstand Russia. At the same time, something has to happen to Russia to make it more desperate. So we'll see how that goes. And, of course, this COVID figures in, this pandemic that never seems to go away anymore, uh, is an end times uh, consideration, in my view. You at least, at least need to think about What's going on with a worldwide disease? Okay, <clears throat> got to go fast today, uh, and I'm not going to. February 20th, 2022, 2022, lecture discussion number 163 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, and Genesis 1 through 3, and we are off. And keep in mind that off may refer to psychological stability, right? As well as the outset of a horse race. If cliffside was... A horse in a horse race, uh, well, let's just concede the obvious here. The cliffside horse is slow. We have always been slow. And that's a polite euphemism, as you know. Slow can mean uh, intellectually deficient uh, or politely uh, stupid or ponderous. It could also be imperceptible movement. And, of course, I prefer measured deliberation. But I am slow, and I know that I'm slow. And I do too. Uh, and I'm just doing my best here. And today I've got so many pages because of the fact that we took uh, the high religious pagan holiday off last week. Okay. And Cliffside, admittedly, is relentlessly mocked. I am relentlessly uh, mocked by sloths, snails, and tortoises uh, because of the way I go through things. And that's okay. I deal with it. But... Uh, uh, today I'm going to try to be fast. <sighs> My definition of fast is a relative term, as you know. Last lecture, number 162, February 6th, we ended with Rebecca and the Pharaoh, and which, if you remember, Rebecca and the Pharaoh intersect with the issue of contention, uh, which is the contribution of will in humanity. Notice how I say that. Dave and I were just talking about this before we began. There, is there a contributing element of will in humanity or not? That is a discussion. That's the issue that is contentious. In simpler terms, the amount or level of will in humanity. That's what we're trying to discuss today. And as you know, as we discuss here often at beautiful downtown Cliffside, which is not beautiful, is not downtown and is nowhere near a cliff, thankfully. The evolutionary super-deterministic position is that free will is utterly illusionary. There is none. Zero. That is the atheistic uh, uh, super-deterministic de position that's in physics. Free will, they say, does not exist at any level. It's not measurable. There's no measurement. Measurement is impossible and futile. It's wasteful. And they repeat this, those who say this, over and over and over again, especially in the higher levels of academia. And, and of course, in the Hollywood and the media, they all say the same thing. And, uh, and of course, it's up to the church to, to confront that, in my view. And we, by we, I mean me, I, I covered this in my usual shallow cursory approach a few weeks ago and years ago, pointing out that the church of our time has embraced superdeterminism, which I consider problematic at least, at the least, and destructive, actually. The church should never have climbed into this wagon with the super-deterministic evolutionary atheists. That was craziness. But they did because they wanted to be respected by academia. And the one thing that you should not ever wish to be is, is respected by academia or media. Okay. Will is attached to existence. Will 
cannot be expunged from existence. The expunction, the expunging will is a dangerous thing to do philosophically and theologically because automatons, robots, do not have sentience. They do not have qualia. Uh, free will is the basis for self-awareness and for willfulness. My self-awareness is tied to me having will. Are you having will? Are my dogs having will? Animals having will? Plants do not have will. They do not have sentience. They do not have awareness. There are things that we would consider alive, like uh, microbiological systems, minute, small biological systems. We will say they are alive, but they do not have any self-awareness. They don't have any will. Will is what separates existence from non-existence. Now, I'm going to make that point, and then, of course, I'll have to defend it. Defend it. Without will, there is no existence, which is why the atheists assert that there is no resurrection from death. Notice how I put those together. To the atheist, death of the body is supreme. It's omnipotent. When one, once death comes, nothing can come to, nothing can resist death. Nothing can change you out of a death state. That's why the Bible is so important. That's why, and it's why again they, they say there is no resurrection. To the atheist, again, Nothing can overcome the power of physical death. It is the permanent end. And they say it loudly. They scream it, these super determinists. And they mock those of us who have the alternate view, that have hope, that see purpose in life, that see uh, the possibility for joy and for reconciliation and all of those things that we hold dear. Okay? That's one of the problems. You take will away and you eliminate self-awareness. But they don't, they don't care about that. And alongside of existence that comes with will is accountability. If there is no will, then accountability is, ne- is negated uh, b- uh, it's, uh, because of superdeterminism and predestination. If all th- Let me put it this way. I'm, I'm stumbling over that. If all things, and by all things, I mean the minute quantum level, the, the minute biological level, the, the vegetational level, at the soil level, if all things, because there's movement, there's motion in everything, all th- if all things are predestined, all things are superdeterminist, uh, then courts of judgment are invalidated. There is no reason to have courts. We, Dave and I were talking, why do the, why do the angels rejoice? Because the angels rejoice when somebody comes to Christ. When one person, one sinner repents, the angels rejoice. Why would they do that if everything is superdetermined? If everything is predestined? There's no reason to rejoice. What's the point? Obviously, the angelic realm thinks that there's some kind of contribution, some kind of level of free will in the sinner that repents. So you're arguing with them. And I, and I get all the arguments, and we will go over it uh, as we keep going along. But my point today is that courts uh, of judgments are invalidated. Accountability is invalidated if everything is predestined. If everything is super determined. See, what becomes a responsibility? Predestined all things? If the judge, if the judge has predestined all things, then the defendant has no responsibility. And now you have to ask yourself, what's the purpose of the white throne judgment? Well, it becomes a very, very hopeless position. Terithathy was asking, what is the point of life if there is no existence? Ultimately, if there's no self-awareness. They will tell you that your self-awareness, of course, is just like everything else. It's an illusion. You really don't have any self-awareness when you get into this debate. Again, it is, it is madness, but here we are. And that all of this discussion so far leads us back to Pharaoh and Rebecca. That's how we got to Pharaoh and Rebecca. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, did Rebecca choose willfully, Genesis 24, 57 through 58, did she choose willfully to go with the Holy Spirit to the bridegroom? If you remember the story, if you read it now, you'll find out that uh, Abraham, uh, the, the old Abraham, the ancient of days Abraham, sends his old ancient of days faithful servant to go and get a bride for the bridegroom. And so we have this ancient of days, this elder old thing being there. And I really appreciate old things now because I am an old thing. Being an older thing as I speak in front of you, I'm aging rapidly. I probably will age. I'll lose 1,500 hairs by the end of this 
lecture. Did Rebecca, though, choose to go with the old servant, who obviously is a picture of the Holy Spirit. Abraham's the father. The, the triunity is being displayed here dramatically. Abraham the father, the Holy Spirit, and the son, right? They're all there. Did, the, did Rebecca willfully choose to go with the Holy Spirit so that she could be the bride of the bridegroom? And obviously, I jumped a few steps with a literal account there. Uh, which also depicts doctrinal precepts and tenets and biblical revelations. It, that Rebecca is an amazing thing. Rebecca does say this, I will go. Now, this was sent to me by John from Pennsylvania, and it's fantastically important. He really uh, gave me two weeks of material here, or maybe five. Does God have free will? That's my next question. Does he? Well, what would you answer? What would the evolutionist answer? What would the atheist answer? They would say no. God, is, well, God doesn't exist, so he doesn't have free will. So they would answer no on the basis of existence. But most of us would say, yes, God has free will. Even amongst the theological, theological community that argues, if I, almost everybody that I have, it's universal, I think, Ubiquitous, almost everyone I've ever asked in the theological hierarchy, the higher than me by far, if I, I always ask, does God have free will? You say that humanity has no free will. Does God have free will? And they all answer yes, most do. I have never come up with, a, with a, an avowed theologian who answered no to that question. And certainly, again, the atheists and the evolutionists deny the existence of the pre-existing God, the ego, me, I am one, the being one, they, they deny that, that that person has any validity or has any existence. So they say no. Would God, having will, did God bestow upon his nefesh, Allah, shaya, his living beings, did he bestow will upon his living beings? That becomes the next obvious question, right? If God has it, did he give it to anybody? And if he did give it to somebody, who did he give it to? And I'm suggesting, obviously, that it is the nefesh. It is the the harach, the ruach, the living beings. Boiling it down. Is will inherent? Is it necessary to be a living being? And my answer to that is yes, it is, as you know. Or is it your position... That the willful being, the I am, the God of creation, did not give will to anything or anyone. Now, is there, are there those who have that position in the church today? Raise your hand if your name is Dave. The answer is absolutely. They, they will say to you that God has free will, but he did not give it to anyone or any animal. That's what they say. Now we're going to, is that defendable? And I'm going to say, if it's your position that he did not give will to anyone or anything, welcome to the satanic argument, because that is the lie of Satan. If it is so that God either has no will of his own, which is madness, or he refused to allocate will, in fact, he willfully denied will. Think about that for a second. Did he do that? He willfully denied will to the angels, mankind, and animal kingdoms. That's your position. Ultimately, you have to have that. He has the will, but he would not give it to angels, animals, or human beings. He denied it. What is the motivation, the purpose for that? Why would he do that would be my immediate question to you. And, and if you deny will, again, that is the denial of existence, which is a deliberate deception. It's a lie. Because he gave. he says over and over again in the Bible that we have existence. We are eternal beings. And if, you, if he did not give us uh, any uh, self-awareness, again, which is tied to will, then all of creation is doomed. It's hopeless. As you said, young lady, just earlier. Look at you go. You've got to the place where you don't need me at all now. Again, welcome to Satan's lie. Because Pull up a chair, take your shoes off, because that's where you are. If you have this position that God, a willing God, who has will, who has free will, did not give it to anyone. So that is exactly what Satan accuses him of and has accused him of ever since we've seen the record. It starts in Ezekiel 28 
goes to Isaiah 14, and of course it's Genesis 3-4. It's a Job 1 and 2. Anyway, this is where the Pharaoh, the Pharaoh, comes into the room. Did Pharaoh harden himself? Did God harden Pharaoh? It's easy to answer yes to both questions. Exodus 7, 3, 7, 13, 7, 14, 7, 22, 7, 23, 8, 15, 8, 19, 8, 32, 9, 7, 9, 12, 9, 35, 10, 20, 10, 27, 11, 10. Look them up. Did Pharaoh, did God harden Pharaoh's heart? The answer is yes. Did Pharaoh harden his own heart? The answer is yes. There's your verses. But you better be careful, better be measured here. Deliberate, measured deliverance, did I say deliverance? Measured de- de- deliverance. <sighs> you you, you got to be careful, because you lest you are snared by the common theological booby trap here of ambush. That being the definitions of men. I like the creaking floor. It gives a sense of ambiance. Okay, uh, to repeat the never repeated enough Chronister Law of Definitions. I should repeat it every Sunday, but I don't. It, which says the only definition is God's definition. All definitions other than God's de- definitions are crap. Uh, can I say crap? Do you have to be old to say crap? Am I old enough to get away with saying crap? I'll look in the mirror. Oh, I am old enough. That is the only mirror in the house that uh, we haven't gotten rid of. Or won't get rid of, I guess. Okay. So what is the definition of hardening of heart? Don't give me your definition. You have to give me God's definition. Or we're going to start in problems right off the bat. Your definition, again, is not meaningful. You have to know what his is. And so when you see those words, and of course go into the Hebrew and see what they actually mean and how how they're formed, figure out what God is saying by this in his Bible. Okay, so what is the definition of hardening of heart as is consistently the condition, the actuality, without exception? The Old Testament is defined. It has, you can see what these definitions are by looking at the context where they're used. The Old Testament also has a New Testament complement, a counterpart. So I can find the counterpart to what happened to the Pharaoh. What happened to the Pharaoh is in the New Testament. It has to be. So where can I find hardening of heart of, of, uh, of Exodus 7 uh, through 10? Where can I find those? What can I, where can I find that in the uh, New Testament? And I'm going to offer to you uh, Romans 134. Right? 134? No, 124. I'm going to say there you go. There's your hardened Hardening of heart definition. And it's through, it goes to 132. As the, it's the most obvious of the obvious New Testament compliments to Exodus 11, 10, 10, 27, 10, 20, 9, 35, 9, 12, 7, 13, 7, 14. Uh, which normally cause the most angst to the commentators. They struggle here. They don't know what to do. So they just make up stuff and throw it at the wall. And, and it's needless because you got Romans 124 through uh, 132. The super determinists rejoice over the mainline theological interpretation of Exodus 11, 10, 10, 27, 10, 20, 9, 35, 9, 12, 7, 13, 7, 14. When the super determinists and the evolutionists and the atheists who hate the Bible are jumping up and down over mainline theological positions, you ought to be concerned. At least Step back and go, why would people who hate Christ and hate Christianity, and they do, they despise it. All you have to do is listen to them, read what they say. Why would I want them to rejoice over my theological position with regard to hardening of the heart of the Pharaoh? I think I would be a little bit detoured. And my point being is, uh, me thinks it does not mean what they think it means. They're wrong again. They do not have the right definition. They have violated Chronister's law of definitions. At any rate, Romans 124 through 32 outlines the situation. 
And here I'm going to give you a synopsis. Now, I've added some words in here. I do that a lot. I'm not trying to add the scripture. I'm trying to make it so you understand uh, what it's saying easier. That's not necessarily a great reason, but it's what I'm, do- what I'm doing. Therefore, God also gave them up. What's the first question? Who's them? Those. Who's those? Those who exchange who exchanged the truth of Jesus God. Now, I've added that. The truth is almost always, when you see the truth of God, that's always Christ. So, those who exchange the truth of Jesus God for the lie of Satan. And there will be those, of course, in the tribulation. It's coming soon, I believe. The lie of Satan is a person, and the truth of God is a person. One of them, the truth of God is Christ. The lie of Satan is also a person that is Antichrist. And they exchange the truth of God for the lie of Satan. Second Thessalonians 2, 8 through 12. The truth is Christ. The lie is Antichrist. So keep that to the forefront. Those who worship the lie. So they worship the Antichrist, which is a creature, a created being, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Christ is the creator of all things. Colossians 1, 15 through 18. John 1, 1 through 4. Now notice, remember the third plague, Exodus 8, 16 through 19. It's a short plague. Four verses. Specifically, Exodus 8, 17. All of the dust. So start thinking now. God's definition versus your definition. God's thoughts. All of the dust of the land became lice. How much land in the Egyptian empire? How much dust in that land? All of the dust in the land became lice. It's the mystery of the dust. I don't have it up here on the board, but remember the mystery of the the dust. We're not done with the mystery of the dust. Much to the, I can hear the whole crowd groaning already. Oh no. Ah, what's the matter with this guy? Eight nineteen, they the Exodus eight nineteen, the mystery of the dust. Then, the super deterministic evolutionary scientists. Now that obviously is not in the text, but that's what I like to call them, as you know from last week. They said to Pharaoh. This is the finger of God taking all the dust in all the land and turning it into lice. That's the finger of God. God has done this, they screamed at Pharaoh. Only God can do this, they said to Pharaoh. But, Exodus 8.19, Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed the warning from the super-deterministic magicians who may not be super deterministic after they saw all the dust in all the land turned into lice. I've often wondered what God is going to do to the evolutionary scientific community. Will he take all the dust in all the land and turn it into lice? And what would they say? Ooh, look at how fast evolution is moving. The magicians did not do that. The magicians of Pharaoh. They warned Pharaoh. This is God. Only God can do this. The warning was, duh, God himself has commutated all of the dust to lice. And again, how much lice was that? Think about being in a place where all the dust is now lice. Probably cancel school. And God did this with just his finger. That's the point. It's God and it's only his finger. This is a warning. If this is his finger, what do you think his whole hand will do? So let's quit while we're, while we're behind, Pharaoh. That's what those magicians were doing. They were actually somewhat heroic. They could have all been executed. So it's pretty impressive stuff, in my view. By the way, <coughs> oh, commutation is an electrical turn. I did a lot of work on commutators. I had to remove them and, and resolder in new ones on, on generation systems. Uh, so it's, a D, it's an electrical term. It's a locomotive systems. It's DC generation. It's traction motors and all that fun stuff that I did for most of my life, but not most of my life, okay, 10, 12 years of it. 
That's why I have pictures of trains that I've worked on on the wall. Pharaoh would not listen. The warning of the evidence that God had done this did not matter to Pharaoh. Because what are we doing? Yes, that's right. We're, we're talking about Romans 124 through 132. And what is the definition of hardening of heart? That's what we're doing. So he cast it aside. Pharaoh said, I'm, I don't care. Why did he do that? Was it a decision, an act of his will? Now compare the king of Nineveh. Now compare the king of Nineveh, Jonah three five through ten. The people of Nineveh believed God, Romans four three. Jonah three five. The king proclaims his belief. He gets a warning. A prophet has come that was vomited up on the shore and was resurrected out of a fish and he's telling us that God is going to kill us all. And the king believed him, believed Jonah and believed God. It says it clearly. The king covered himself in ashes and in sackcloth and he mourns for his sin, Matthew 5, 4. It's in the Beatitude. Blessed is he who mourns for his sin. And the Assyrians turn from evil. Is turning from evil an act of will? Why do angels rejoice? They think so. Many, 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 many Bible scholars will say what, Dave? No. No will. Sorry. None. I got rejoicing angels. I got the Assyrians. I've got the king of Assyria. And they, everybody goes, no. It's an illusion. Us and the evolutionists, we're, we're buddies. What are you thinking? Uh, and again, I've always wondered about those previously super-deterministic evolutionary magicians. Say that quickly. I had to practice. But uh, did they believe God? Did they do what the king of Assyria did? I suspect they, they warned that Pharaoh, said, listen. This is the finger of God. Obviously, I have injected commentary into the passages and brought along contemporary illustrations. The point being, yea, a point that Romans 124-128 there is, is, is clear here. Therefore, God gave them up. Who is the them? He defines it. God gave them over to a debased mind. The Greek word here is perdokin. It means delivered, handed over, gave up. A dokemon, not Pokemon, means depraved, reprobate, reprobate, corrupt, foul, wicked, and vile. He gave them up to a brokenness, if you will, of evil. Romans 1.30 describes these that choose to reject Christ as haters of God. They hate him. They know it's him. They know it's his finger. They know that he's, he's coming with judgment. Why would he come with judgment again? If he comes with judgment, judgment cannot be eliminated here in Scripture. The judgment is tied to accountability. What is, account, what is accountability? Accountability is guilt. What is guilt? Guilt is, an, is evidence of will. Anyway, I keep repeating it. Romans 1.30 describes that those who choose to reject God, reject, reject Christ, they're haters. And they know, knowing all along the righteous judgment of God. Listen to that sentence again. Knowing all along the righteous judgment of God, Romans 1.32. Romans 1.32 declares the accountability of God is what? Righteous. It has to be right, righteous. So what means... And here, here's where we get in trouble. Not us. It's righteous because it's pure. It's good. It's perfect. So his judgment is... And righteousness is being attached here. It's... Uh, to his judgment. So if his judgment is good, then it can't be what? Can't be predestined. See, there's this inseparability, will uh, to will, and will is imminent to judgment. So if I have judgment, I have will, and the, right, the judgment is righteous. So that means. The, the righteousness is attached to will because righteousness, see, it's a transitive property, right? 
If judgment is righteous, and I'll cut the words down here, if judges is righteous, and will is attached to judgment, then will is righteous. Just basic transitive property. So, we, thus we return to will and accountability. Note that the haters of God know. They know that He should judge them. They know that it's absolutely righteous that He do so. They know that, and yet they still hate Him, and they still are debased, and they still become more evil. They know that God has the qualifications to judge. John 5.22, Christ is the judge of all things, including all living things, including all everything. He is the judge of all things, John 5.22. He knows all things. He's sinless. Therefore, he's the judge. Because in order to be the judge of all things, you have to know all things and you have to be sinless. You have to be good. And he is good because it says he is. It says he's righteous. So righteousness is good. Will is good. More transitive property. And that which qualifies Christ to be judge is his omniscience and his pure goodness. Rebecca willfully went. The king of Nineveh chose to believe God. He mourned for his unbelief. What's mourning? Why would you mourn? Why would you repent? What is repentance? Define it. Put it into your theology and say, this is my definition. Uh Uh-oh, be careful. What is God's definition of repentance? The haters of God knowing evil from goodness. Ah, Now I'm back in Genesis. Everything goes to Genesis, right? Knowing good from evil. Knowing evil from good. In this case, choose evil. What's choice? In other words, they know they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, Romans 1.28. They know that God is righteous. They know His judgment is good. They know that it is warranted. They know that Christ is qualified. It doesn't matter to them. And He gives them up. He delivers them over to their debased, or to their reprobate or their debased minds. Romans 1.28. They become full of murder, evil, haters of God, inventors of evil things, unloving, without mercy, empathy. They're sociopathical. That's what he does. When you get there, he gives you over. They not only choose wickedness, they seek, they embrace it. Obviously, sociopaths have will. The will and desire to be destructive, to be toxic. They are addicted to inflicting destruction. They become saturated in evil and God allows them to descend to descend into their debased condition. It is said in the psychological fields, especially those who evaluate sociopathic pathological behaviors, that the worst mistake that you can make with one of these kinds of people is to hope for change. In other words, these kinds of criminals never choose repentance. There is no remorse, there's no re- regret, there's no penitence. penitence. Uh, we watched it. Uh, we watched it a couple of times in different formats, but we watched uh, a documentary on the BTK killer. And the one thing they noticed about this man who hung children, the evil as you can be, profoundly evil man, and a narcissist through and through, a sociopath, and he had no remorse, not a minute. He loved it. He was a poster child for sociopathic behavior. Narcissistic sociopathy. Now, though I I disagree with that assessment that uh, the worst thing you can do is hope for change because with God nothing is impossible. There's no zero probabilities. Luke 18, 27, Luke 1, 37, Matthew 19, 23 through 26. But with that said, I nonetheless recognize the statistical rate of recidivism is so close to 100% that the perfect is the enemy of the good. In other words, I'm going to go on the side of the stats. The math says these people don't change. You can never trust them. They're evil. They're going to only get more evil. And what I mean by that is that the lake of fire, Matthew 25, 41, will be overflowing with demonic beings that can never be released because they'll never be anything but evil. 
Revelation 9. They have also been given over to their degraded minds. They know the truth. They don't care. They hate him. They know he's righteous. They know he's good. They know everything about Satan's lie is a lie by now. They still believe it. That is a reprobate mind. And that is in the the fallen angels. Notice now how we have re-entered the levels of hell discussion when I talk about the demonic beings that can never be released. (coughs) Which we won't get to the level of hell today. We'll get to it next week, I hope. The point for today, yea, finally a semi-cogent point. Once a free will being eliminates all goodness from themselves, choosing only evil continually. Now notice how I said that. Choosing only evil continually. That's Genesis 6, 5 through 7, which is the first place this discussion shows up. Choosing only evil continually. Whether be, whether that's mankind or fallen angel. The flood of judgment then has to come. The condition of the earth in Genesis 6 was there was only evil continually, both in angel and in humanity, and so he flooded it. He had to get rid of it except for some, and some, some humans, the righteous Noah, the believing Noah and his family, and the animals that God sent to him. Where did God get those animals? By the way. I think it's obvious. Garden of Eden, where he got those animals that were not corrupted. The whole world was corrupted. The whole world was only evil and violence continually. And when you get to that state, here comes God. And I don't let it keep going, because if he let it keep going, that would be tolerance of evil. He has uh, gives people time to repent, but he does not give them time infinitum. Okay? Again, let's focus on this over e- only evil continually because it's going to be confronted by the God of creation who is what? What is the opposite of only evil continually? The opposite is only good continually, right? That's God. He's only good continually. And if you think he's evil, then you're wrong every time. You just don't understand what he's doing. You don't think like him. We'll get to that in a minute. So that, that, that shows you that Genesis 2, 15, 17, as you know, shows up there, as well as Genesis 3, 17, 19, and Romans 5, 12 through 14. The God of creation will confront evil uh, at, at when, he's, when the time is right. And the time that is, when the time comes, it's the right thing for him to do. And those Romans 5, 12 through 14, and Genesis 3, 17, 19, and Genesis 2, 15 through 17, those verses being the physical death verses and the collateral death of those who did not sin, which is the animals. Okay, got to really go. Might make it. Got to, must move along. Okay, as always, we shall revisit. We never not revisit. Uh, Only the interval of revisiting is in question, but... um, uh, let's go to a different part now. Let's leave that section uh, and go with the, the next, the most central of the central question. Uh, obviously, the, the word center is a relative term because it, uh, without the adjective absolute, because we can never really know absolute center without a constant motion, within a constant motion reality. So, uh, anyhow, why did I even bring that up? Who can know the absolute center within a constant motion reality? I, that's the question. I'm asking for a friend, but you know I do not have friends. right? Uh, hey, I'll, I'll di- I'm digressing. Getting my breath. Another central question. If angels and mankind and animals have no free will, as is the position of the overwhelming majority right now, I think it's overwhelming, most people will deny that, but not in in his scholastic endeavors. They will say animals and mankind and angels have no free will. And they like to say human beings don't have free will and animals don't have free will, but you can't do that, can you? You have to add angels. Angels don't have any free will either, and God did not give free will to anyone. Okay. 
if mankind, angels, and animals have no free will, how does this impact, how does this affect the blood sacrifice of Christ? I started before. How does this affect the rejoicing of angels? How does this affect the blood, blood sacrifice of Christ? In other words, if God's omniscience eliminates the possibility of all free will, irrespective of the level, there is no level. In other words, if superdeterminism is, is the characteristic of God, and he eradicates all will, and therefore, in, by doing so, he eradicates all existence, just exactly as Satan has accused him of. Is the blood of Christ, is the crucifixion now disturbed by that? If, you, if that's your truth, and you put it out there, that's your doctrine, what are you doing to the crucifixion? What is the collateral damage to your position? Is the blood sacrifice of Christ as to the purpose? See, why does Christ have a blood sacrifice? Why does his blood cover? What is the purpose of the blood sacrifice of Christ? Is it damaged? Is it collateral damage by your position of superdeterminism? Obviously, the communion aspect, in my opinion, is unscathed. In other words, the blood transfusion. Our dead blood replaced by Jesus Christ's living blood. He has life blood. We have dead blood. Death blood. So we need a blood transfusion. So that's the communion aspect. The wine and the cup. The flesh and the blood. The wine and the bread, sorry. The cup and the bread. But what about the propitiation element, the cleansing of sin? Because his blood is also a cleansing element, right? The superdeterministic theology undermine why Christ cleanses sin with his blood. And how about resurrection? Why does Christ resurrect the body of the dead? If everything is superdetermined, why do we even have death in the first place? So how does death fit into superdeterminism? What about the great white throne? I've asked that, many, asked that many times. Why is there a great white throne judgment? If everything is already settled and the causation is the omniscience of God, and again, I've said thousands of times, causation is not, omniscience is not causation. Calculating a, uh, I mean, if you have a doctrinal position, you have to calculate that doctrinal position against the whys of God or the purposes of God. The purposes of God is a critical stage. You have to know why God does things. And you have to test your view against his why. Once you figure out why he's doing it, then how does your your view fit with that? And what about Wilder Penfield? Everybody asks that question. What about Wilder Penfield? Well, what about Wilder Penfield? Wilder Penfield, uh, and I've said this, uh, he's one of my heroes. He was a renowned neurologist who specialized in epileptic disorders. Um, there's a great book about him, The Man They Wouldn't Let Die, Lev Landau, who was grievously hurt in a, um, in a car accident. And Wilder Penfield was the man who was hired by the Russians to try to recover the mind and the memory of uh, Lev Landau. Okay, that could be, that phone call could very easily be, uh, we have to take Brinkley to surgery. So I hope it's not, but it could be. Uh, that's why I'm waiting for that phone to be determined. Let me see. I think that's the church phone and not the, uh, not the home, home phone. So we should be safe. Wilder Pinfield, uh, was an amazing neurologist. And um, he had a medical discipline that he dealt with neurology that led him to write The Mystery of the Mind. Uh, Wilder Penfield, you see, understood expeditiously that the mind, the consciousness, could not be explained by physical processes. The mind, therefore, was outside of and not subject to physical mechanism and death of the body being foremost of those measures. Of all the physical processes, the one that is overwhelming in this, we are in a sea of death. And the, but the mind is not subject to it. And, and you've heard me discuss that to the point of fatigue, and I, I understand it, but I, people join us of this conversation many times without listening to anything but one lecture. So that's part of the reason why I keep repeating it. But Wilder Penfield, though, he, he leapt through to the conclusion, and that being the necessity of a supernatural energy 
John 8, 12, Genesis 1, 3. And he, he knew that there had to be a supernatural energy that would continue with the mind. Because the mind is not physical, it's a mental property. Therefore, there has to be a mental property complement, which would be the energy source for the mind, the consciousness that has left the body, unaffected by the physical process of death, because it can't be, it's a mental process. And he understood that uh, his, it was just a certainty to him. which uh, And he could explain it and he could defend it. So in other words, there had to be a non-physical power. I didn't say by the way. I said in other words. It's not the same. In other words, a non-physical power source that would sustain the mind until the body could be resurrected. He knew the mind had to have energy. Dr. Penfield was certain of the intermediate state. He only concerned himself with the operational specifics of the intermediate state. For example, how complex is the intermediate state? How complex is it? Imagine yourself disembodied. Your body's in the grave. You are in heaven. How complex is your environment? Are all senses, the five senses, which are mental properties, as you know, you see in your mind, not with your eyes. Your eyes just take photons, converted to electrical energy. Your mind interprets it. You see in your sleep. You can close your eyes and you can see things. So the five senses are mental properties. The mental properties are the purview of the mind, not the brain. Are the senses intact in the intermediate state? Sight, smell, taste, hearing, touch, feel. Touch, feel. Touchy-feely. Why did God give us those senses and the design that we have to where they are actually mental properties? Anyway... We know the current angelic state, right? We know what the angels are like pretty much. We have the Bible to tell us. The spirit realm, complex as it is, we have some understanding of it. Is the intermediate state for animals and mankind the same as the angelic state? That's my question. Angels can do what? They can speak. They can assume physical form. They can eat. They hear. They carry. They fight. They move. They sing. And they play trumpets. Makes them special. Consider the physics of all of that. There's a lot of physics. A a, a spiritual being plays a horn that we can hear. There's there's a commingling, isn't there? There's an intertwining of the angelic realm and the physical state. In Lazarus the beggar and Abraham and the rich evil Pharisee and Moses, Elijah and Samuel, Luke 16, 19 through 31, Matthew 17, 2 Peter 2, 4, 1 Samuel 28, 14 through 20, Revelation 9. Revelation 9 is a big part of this because I have physical beings that can kill human beings that are spiritual beings. In other words, I have spiritual beings who have physical form and they can kill physical forms of humans. Don't fear those who can kill the body. Christ says that definitively. And thus we have this key question. What are the differences between the intermediate state of animals and mankind and the current angelic conditions? What is the answer? Do you, you say there's no differences? Or there's lots of differences? Vote now. Vote often. Huh. Samuel has a form, it says, 1 Samuel 28, 14. Teoro. Samuel was wearing a a mantle or a robe. Saul recognized Samuel. Saul knew. He saw the robe, the mantle of Samuel. He knew that Samuel. Knowing is also a mental property. Samuel spoke and he was irritated. Why did you call me up here, Saul? I'm busy. I got things to do. What did Samuel think of his intermediate state? Did he like it? He was irritated that he was called out of it. Anyway, the point for today, yay, a point for today is to think conceptually. Some might suggest a theoretical, theoretical visionary approach to these types of subjects, and I wouldn't disagree with that. I would propose that when you consider omniscience, uh, that you consider omniscience and infinity when you think about these kinds of things. In other words, how, that's the second time I've said that, I have to make a chart. How would a loving, omniscient, omnipotent, creative mind design the intermediate state? You think it's just nothingness but a but bunch of disembodied spirits? How beautiful is the intermediate state? How amazing is it? Is the intermediate state a forerunner 
to the new city of Jerusalem? Do we see similar things? And he carries them forward, which he does dispensationally in almost everything he does. We puny-minded human beings tend towards human limits, and God does not think like us. We have the Isaiah 55 principle. That's the way you read the Bible. That's how you get a definition of hardened heart. That's how you think about things. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Uh, That's what he says. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Am I on time? I might make it. In other words, his thoughts and ways cannot be even grasped by us. We have no clue. Little idiots, and yet we go, this is what he's doing. What we think is never close, especially with the subject such as the intermediate state, the new city of Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth. We don't have any idea how incredible that's going to be. We can't even imagine it. I've seen paintings and they don't come close. For that said, always reach for the concept that is the greatest, the most wonderful, realizing that we cannot ever envision the smallest of his creation, the wonder, the beauty of the tiniest piece. At the least, raise your expectations with respect to the creative mind of the Lord God Almighty. And then lower your expectations to everything else. Raise them for him. That intermediate state's incredible for man and animal. It's incredible. What's it like? We can't even begin to conceive it. Okay, let's now transition to Genesis 15. Oh my. Why, why? Make him stop. Not Genesis 15. I know you're all saying that. Well, it's not my fault. Apparently the lecture on the two birds, Genesis 15, 9 through 11, were not, are not on the internet platforms. Is that correct, Dave? Did I say that right? Or It may not be there. And I have received two requests to revisit the mysteries of the two birds recently. One from Alan in the Philippines and the second from Mindy in Alaska. And I know, I know what you're thinking. Someone in Alaska is listening and that's truly a shock. And we've got to be careful not to reveal which city in Alaska. I didn't, I didn't give the city. I know the city. Because if I do, Mindy's property is going to be vandalized and that would be, you know, eventually we'll have some liability. And i got to add this real fast. Both of these people sent me things on Messenger, Facebook Messenger. I never look at it. Dave sends them to me and Lori finds them. And we have no idea how Lori and I do not respond to them. So if you get a response on Facebook Messenger, it's always Dave who doesn't exist. And it's probably always going to be that way. I'm, I, I can do emails. There was a time where I wouldn't even think about doing emails. Website office at gmail.com. Anyway, Genesis 15 is a stunningly complex piece of scripture. It's a perfect example of a passage where it is advisable to discard compressed human thought and prepare for a lifetime of study. He doesn't think like us. So don't think you figured that out. People will look at Genesis 15, they get these convoluted things, and then there's no possibility they're correct. You've got to think like he thinks a little bit, as much as you can, and you can't do it, but never mind. If there was a chapter in Scripture where God reveals his Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 principle, Genesis 15 is it. It's the aforesaid. Are we, by we I mean me, going to finish, going to wrap up, going to tiny bow the two birds today? What a get serious. I doubt we'll even get to the two birds. Anyway, what do we got? Genesis 15, 8. Abraham asked this great question. Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? And Lord God is Adonai, YHVH, okay? The sovereign YHVH, the majesty, the possessor of all things. How shall I know that I will inherit it? The it that is to be inherited is salvation. I'll cut to the chase. Paul outlines that in Galatians 3, 2 through 9. He quotes Genesis 15, 6. Anyway, quoting Genesis 15, 6, and Abraham believed God and he, God, accounted it to Abraham for righteousness. Righteousness being salvation, judgment, salvation, all that goodness. Thus, Genesis 15.8 refers to Genesis 15.6. They tie together. Got to know that. 
Don't go into the Genesis 15 and, and dissect those two verses. They are there together. Paul asks another great question in Galatians 3.2. Did you receive the spirit of works? I'm sorry. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? The hearing of faith. A rhetorical question. It assumes that salvation, righteousness comes from hearing and believing God. Much to the dismay of those who preach works-based salvation. They call me all the time. Said, have you figured out that you can't be saved without works? Is there such a thing as works-based salvation of any kind? Once it becomes works-based salvation, I don't care how much they say it's grace and works. Well, if it's got works in it, then it's not grace. They aren't compatible. There's no such thing as a works-based salvation. Galatians 3.6, Genesis 15.6, Romans 1.16-17. 1, salvation for everyone who believes, believes is a mental property. There's no physicality to it at all. The just shall live by faith. Okay, so right off the bat, Galatians 3, Romans 1 are intertwined with Genesis 15.6 and 15.8. And Abraham, Abraham wants to know... He will be given salvation. How do I know I will be given salvation? That's his question. He wants to know. He doesn't want to feel. And I asked this thousands of times when we first got started. Do you want to know? Or do you want to feel? Do you want to know you're saved? Do you want to feel you're saved? The overwhelming majority of the contemporary church with their little broadcast cubes. Where's my my Joe Austin crap? Can I say crap? Good. They want to feel. Abraham wanted to know, how can I know I'm saved? I don't want to feel I'm saved. I want to know the overwhelming majority, again, want to feel feelings are transitory. They're fleeting. They're volatile. But people are going to pay for them feelings. They're not going to pay to know. They're going to pay to feel. And they're going to pay a lot. And the mega churches, they they know that. And they make you cry. They steal your money. They take financial advantage of that. But I could digress here, couldn't I? God tells Abraham, Genesis 59, that the path to knowing is take me, comma. Take me, it's not just take me. It's take me, take me, comma. That comma is critical. Now, commas are not, are put in there arbitrarily by the, the translators. But I believe that that comma needs to be there. Take me, comma. The path to knowing is take me, comma, a three-year-old heifer, comma, a three-year-old female goat, comma, a three-year-old ram, comma, a turtle dove, comma, and a young pigeon, period. All of those refer to believing God and knowing that you have salvation or the assurance of salvation. All of those go back to Genesis 15.6 and 15.8. 15.6 and 15.8, they're the substrate, they're the foundation. Everything that comes after that. So how are the two birds connected to 15.6 and 15.8 of Genesis? That's your question. I'm convinced that the comma is missing in most translations after take me. And most translations also uh, uh, translate uh, as bring. And I think the King James, the old King James got it perfect. Take me. It's take me. You got to, you, Abraham was told to bring Jesus Christ. So that means... Whoever, what comes next is portraying Jesus Christ. So that's, he's portrayed by the heifer, a goat, a ram, and two birds. And here's where it gets strenuous. The heifer sends us to Numbers 19, the ashes of the red heifer. So now you gotta go to Numbers, uh, Numbers 19 in order to figure out what the heifer is doing here in Genesis 15. And it seems blatantly obvious that Genesis 15, 9, the three-year-old heifer was a red heifer. The ashes of the red heifer were to be a cleansing, a purification agent, a provision from contact with death. That's what they're for. Is Christ a cleansing agent that has that cleanses you of contact with death? He absolutely is. Numbers 19, 14 through 17. The female goat dispatches us to Leviticus 16. It's the day of atonement. There's two goats. I got two birds and I got two goats. Probably an accident. Probably a coincidence. Or it's never that way. There's lots on these two goats. In other words, chances. There's a lot for the goat that's slain and the lot for the goat that's released into the wilderness for Azazel, who is Satan, a person. Azazel is a person. See Matthew 14, Luke 4, Mark 1. 
I submit that the two goats help explain the two birds. Feel like Nixon. Thank you for laughing. You have to be old to get that joke, don't you? You've got to be what? You just said, I'm 60 right there. <laughs> the three-year-old ram, no one, uh, no one who don't, doesn't see the video will get that joke, will they? The, the three-year-old ram, a young ram is called a, a ram lamb. So the lamb and a ram, they're t- tied together. So that's going to take you to Passover. You've got a feast day of Passover now to investigate. The ram obviously is a Genesis 22 referral. It's the substitute, the sacrificial ram caught in the thorns, in the thickets. Christ put has a thorn system on his head during his crucifixion. I think everyone can see that you see Christ in, in in each of these just a little bit, and there thereby you're just validating, comporting uh, that the take me is speaking about Christ, and there's a comma there. Take me, take Christ. The two birds are explained by Leviticus 14, 2 Kings 5, Luke 4:27, Matthew 11:5, Luke 7:22, Ecclesiastes 3:18 through 20, and Ecclesiastes 12:7, and the two birds. Same subject. And Leviticus 14, not only has the ritual for cleansing a healed leper, you've heard me talk about this hundreds of times too, there were none healed of leprosy except Naaman the Syrian until Christ did what? Until he came and he healed thousands. And he buried the Pharisees in Leviticus 14. They had to do this ceremony for the healed leper. But aside from that, Leviticus 14 also contains... Uh, the two uh, male rams and the ewe lamb, female lamb. So I got more ram lambs to deal to address there. And then there's the fire and smoke that passes between the divided animals. We haven't even got to that. Fire and smoke reminds us of what? When I see fire and smoke, what do I think of? Absolutely, pillar of cloud. And Matthew 26, 36 through 40, 46 is the cup of Gethsemane, the solution to sin and the fire and smoke and the cup of Gethsemane, they're going to be together. Now, there are thousands of commentaries to be found on Genesis 15, and most of them are wrong. I think, peg the needle. They focus on, they say that this is a covenant, Abrahamic covenant. And they're right about that. But they say the animals dying is a warning that if the covenant is broken, that you will die, and that God will die. So we got a couple of problems with that view. No, the the animals being cut in half are pictures of Christ. And you have to figure out how. The birds are not cut in half. So that's the question that uh, Mindy from Alaska and Alan from the Philippines, he wants to, they want to know were the birds cut in half or, or why weren't the birds cut in half? And that is an incredibly difficult question. Genesis 15 is not simple. So cast aside those commentators that focus on this you will die or God will die if, if either one of you breaks the, the vow of the, of the cut in half animals. We'll find a different position. It's his thoughts, Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, are not your thoughts. That's what you thought of. Did he think of it? No, he starts out with take me. You think he's going to digress? He's going to get bogged down in some covenant thing, I, I, I just I think you, you got to expand a little bit. Genesis 15, not simple. Abraham saw something that made him know what? He was absolutely positive when he saw it. He knew that he was saved and he would inherit inter- eternal life. What did he see that made him do that? What exactly did he see? Was it the vultures? Because vultures came. Well, can you kick out the vultures? Let's get rid of the vultures. Why were there vultures? Think like God thinks. Why do you have vultures come? He put Abraham in a deep sleep. Now what do we got to do? We got to go to Adam. We got to go to Noah. I got deep sleeps everywhere. I got, I got, why deep sleep? Why the same as Adam? Why, what has Adam got to do with this? And he's got something to do with what? That's right, the two birds. Because everything fits. He's a type of Christ, Romans 5.14. He's, so you're going to have to fit Adam into the two birds, which are what? Types of Christ. What would you need? Put yourself in Abraham's position. You ask God, show me something so that I can know that I will inherit eternal life. Show it to me. How can I know? I don't want to feel it. 
I want to know it. What did he see? What did Abraham see? What would you need to see? What happened when the smoking furnace and the flaming light went through those cut in half animals? Think like God thinks. Get higher. Don't settle for the simple. Here's a fun question. Were the birds killed? They weren't cut in half. Were they they just sitting there? Hope the vultures don't get them. That's what other people think. They think the vultures came because they were going to eat the food that was cut in half on the altar. Okay, I, I, I know vultures, vultures eat dead things. But if you think that's what it was, we're in trouble. We're going to have a long time to deal with. Were the bill, birds killed? Just asking for fun. Had enough? Blame Mindy. Alan, not my fault. Okay, that's it.